Welcome to the Unbound Healing Podcast. I'm Anne-Marie Garland, nutritional therapist and health coach at Grass-Fed Salsa, and with me is my co-host Michelle Hoover, certified nutritional therapy practitioner and writer of everything you'll find at Unbound Wellness. Here we share everything about overcoming health challenges from autoimmunity to hormone imbalance and more with holistic living, mindset shifts, practical tips, and a real food paleo approach. Remember our disclaimer, the content within this podcast is intended to provide general information and is not to be substituted for medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Now let's get on with the show. Hello, everyone. It's Michelle here. Anne and I are doing something a little bit different this week, and we are doing two interviews. We're recording them separately, and we are doing it about a topic that we often get asked about and something that I'm sure that we've both had questions about a lot throughout our own journeys, and that is how do you get support from people? in your life. And we're going to be talking specifically about spouses. So we are going to be talking to our husbands, my husband, Daniel, and Anne's husband, James. They'll be here in the flesh. Very exciting. What a treat. And we have an episode in the podcast. We will link the number in the show notes that escapes me at the moment, but we have one where we talk about family and cooking for other people in your family and social situations and all of that food stuff. So we're not going to be talking so much about food here since we already talked about that, how we did that together. And um, so for this one, we're just going to be talking about support, emotional support, how we get that, how we support each other through that. So yeah, we're excited to do this spousal support episode. We were going to do this for Valentine's Day, but Daniel and I both got the flu. <laughs> well, Daniel got the flu. I just got really bad cold. We were both sick. It didn't happen, but now it's happening. So <laughs> let's go talk to Daniel. All right. So I am here with Daniel, my husband. And let me tell you the setup so you can kind of imagine how this is working. We're both sitting on the couch. I'm sitting in the middle. Stinky, our cat, is sitting to my right. Daniel's sitting to my left. And I'm just holding a microphone. So I'm going to be passing it back and forth. Maybe Stinky will get it a couple times. Maybe Daniel. I don't know. Things may get interesting. But if it sounds like I'm just doing an reporter interview type thing. It's kind of because I am with the microphone situation. But so here with Daniel, how did we meet Daniel? Where did we meet? Match.com. Just internet found each other pretty quickly. Yeah. Yeah. So I went on match.com and literally within seven days, Daniel had messaged me and then less than a year, we were married. So it was pretty efficient. I often say that I Amazon primed a husband. Um, and then how long have we been married? So by the way, Ann and I are both reading off of a outline. Uh, so if it sounds like we're saying the same questions, it's because we are. So we've been married for three years. We just came up on three years this past January. We were engaged December 24th and we were married January 23rd. And people always ask me why 
Why did we do that so quick? Um, and then why did we have a second wedding <laughs> on October 11th? Um, well, we knew right when we got engaged that we wanted to get married and we didn't want to have to wait until all this time to plan a wedding. So we just talked to our families about it and said, Hey, we're just going to run off to a courthouse and then we'll do the big shebang later. Are you guys okay with that? And they were, and it was way less stressful. And then we got to have our fancy wedding right after. So yeah, we had our fancy wedding October 11th and Anna's is going to think that I am either such a good friend or a creepy stalker, but so we were married at our fake wedding, October 11th, 2015. And then her and James were married April 4th, 2015. That's their, <laughs> I better be right. Because <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's my parents' anniversary. That's how I remember it. Okay. Anyway, so let's back up to when that's our background. <laughs> So anyway, let's back up to when we first started dating. Um, How did I break the news of chronic illness without it being awkward? And that's a big question I see from people that are still dating or going into new relationships um, is how do they actually tell somebody that they're dealing with this, that they have these food allergies and intolerances and these chronic illness issues without it being awkward and without it being all too much at once. So I think it was, we had talked for several weeks on mash.com and then we actually met in person. And I believe it was our third or fourth date that we just went out to a coffee shop and I told him, like, hey, here's my health story. I'm pretty sure I told you on Match.com that I had food intolerances. And what did you say was the ideal diet that you would like to be following on Match.com? Do you remember? Uh, well, I think I described my own diet as paleo-ish. It wasn't really accurate, but that's what I saw myself as, at least. That's what you wanted to be. Yeah, yeah. That was my idealized version of myself anyway. <laughs> Which is funny because at that point I did not see myself as paleo at all. And one of our first dates, it was like, let's go to this restaurant. And it's called, it was called Bread Zeppelin, like not paleo at all. I was like, oh, let's go here and you can do it without, but do you want to go there if you're paleo? And he was like, no, I totally eat bread. Well, you're not paleo. Like, well, like I actually have like, yeah. When it was convenient to me. (laughs) (laughs) this is reflected in that other episode where we talk about food. So I, yeah, I told him in the beginning when we were still talking like, Hey, yeah, I do. I don't really eat gluten and I don't really eat this or that. So I talked about that foundation. And then I guess when I felt comfortable enough, I guess that's the number one thing is just when you feel comfortable enough with somebody where you feel like, you know, they won't think it's weird for you to be talking about it, you know, every relationship and situation is different. So I guess once I felt comfortable enough is when I talked about it, when I told him kind of my whole story with Hashimoto's. And honestly, now that I think about it, it was the date after I had taken him when we first went to my home church at the time. So I had just come out of an environment that felt really familiar and comfortable 
So that may be a nice little tip to add in being in an environment and just kind of a mood where you feel a little bit more comfortable and not necessarily when you're at like a sports bar with his friends. If you're like at Hooters, be like, I can't eat gluten, like yell that across the table. Like that's probably kind of awkward. Being in a more comfortable environment definitely helped me. So how do you feel like you reacted to that when I first told you, laid all of that on you? I know it's a while ago, but how do you feel like you reacted? Um, well, it's funny because when I think about it or my memory of it, I didn't even think of it as a, oh, wow, look, this, there's this big health problem she has. I mean, I remember you explaining, yeah, I've, I've struggled with this and that, but I, what I ended up coming away with was, oh, look at all these things she does to stay healthy and she, how smart she is about nutrition. And wow. So if, you know, if I'm dating her, she'll probably help me with that too. Like I, I remember it actually being fairly positive. So, I mean, I don't know what the takeaway for that is, but I guess maybe uh, don't be too afraid to tell people they, they won't always take it as badly as you feel about it. Yeah, that's awesome. That's something that I'm not everybody will take everything the same way for sure. But I think it's so important for if there are any um, spouses who are listening to this, like if any spouses made their spouse listen, I think it's so important to have that mindset just with everything of like, okay, how can I turn this around to be positive about it rather than how to see this as bad because I was in a lot of relationships where people with people where they saw that and were like oh well I guess this means that we can't go to like this crawfish boil <laughs> or whatever um, but that's something I really love about you that you're always positive and happy about things like this so um yeah, I think that's really good advice. And that's good advice just to talk to your spouse or significant other about it. Like, hey, yeah, I do have Hashimoto's disease or I do have this chronic illness, but healthy, delicious food is always going to be around. And you don't have to worry about trying to be trying to make sure that you stay healthy. Like you just automatically will. I think that's awesome. So We'll talk about this a little bit. How do we go on dates with things like food intolerance, fatigue, stuff like that? So <laughs> I feel like you're going to know the answer to what our default date is. Well, yeah, I mean, for the most part, our default answer to that has been sushi. Because that's just kind of the niche that works for you. And and I happen to like it a lot, too. Yeah. So that would be my number one thing. I think our number one thing of just finding something. If there's even just one food establishment that you can go to, having that be, okay, we go here once a month. We go here every other week, something like that. Um, and then just spouses, if, again, if spouses are listening, just being grateful that there's one place that you can go eat. Um, Daniel, for sure has times where he'll just like go out with friends and get that, you know, pizza fix in, right? Like, how do you feel like you get into that balance between eating healthy food and just like sushi all the time and still being able to get variety, you know? Do you feel like you're able to get that still? Yeah, absolutely. I feel like, you know, when it when time comes around that I'm really craving something, uh, you're always okay with, oh yeah, go in. And you're even willing to kind of put up with 
you know, me eating the big slice of greasy pizza and you'll just watch and then we'll go get something that we can both enjoy. But Exactly. It's important that there's that compromise that he's okay with me just going to the one sushi place. And if you watch my Instagram stories, you'll see the one sushi place I'm talking about. We found like a revolving sushi place and we're just both so happy. <laughs> but he's okay with doing just that one thing with me all the time. And I also support him in like, okay, yeah, you want to go to a pizza restaurant or when we go to Whole Foods, you want to just go get you run and like make a beeline to the pizza counter, like be my guest. Like this is a partnership. If you're going to support me, I'm going to support you sometimes. And obviously 99% of the time I'm making him healthy food at home, but yeah. Yeah. It's not like you're, it's not like you're just enabling me to eat junk food while you have a healthy diet. I, I get to benefit from the fact that you're introducing a lot of healthy food into this and then just occasionally step outside of that for sure so beyond food how do how do you support me let's talk about support beyond food that we talked about that on the episode where ann and i both talked about getting you know living with somebody that is on a different diet and how support doesn't have to be you eating the exact same thing as me it wasn't when I pretty much, you know, did a lot of my early AIP type stuff with you. And he, Daniel's never been on AIP. He's never even been 100% paleo, though he would have liked to have believed that he was when we talked on Match.com. He's never really been that, but he's still been so super supportive of me. So what are some of the things that you would say that you do that is still supportive? Like, what do you try to do? Well, um, in no particular order, uh, there's one part of it is definitely just kind of, um, I would say when interacting with family and friends and scheduling meals and stuff, just being aware of what would be, what you would actually be able to enjoy or partake of, you know, if they're saying, Hey, we all want to go do X, Y, Z thing that involves, you know, a lot of food that you can't have, then, then I might suggest something that, you know, hey, maybe I'll suggest sushi or maybe we'll suggest that, hey, well, actually, we'd be willing to host so they could come here and then we could have your your food that you could eat here, things like that. Um, and of course, just being thoughtful about uh, in the kitchen when making meals, things like, you know, avoiding contamination, things like that. There's a lot they can do just to not mess you up if, if nothing else. For sure. And something that we try, I mean, we've only been married for three years, so we're obviously still learning how to be adults and married people as well. But something that we try to do with fatigue and stuff, because I'm definitely, you know, I'm still a person with an autoimmune disease that can burn myself out. And if I get too stressed, that's my number one trigger, I would say, right? Well, it's pretty closely tied with food, but it's a big trigger for me just having like a flare if I'm super stressed out. So something that we try to divide up the work, just doing housework and running errands and things like that. There's sometimes where I like to do that stuff where I like to, you know, be in the kitchen and I like to go grocery shopping. And there's other times where I'm just like crazy stressed. I'm like, please go put gas in my car. And like, that doesn't sound like something that would be 
a major thing where, oh, I have a chronic illness and I need support. Please go put gas in my car. Like that doesn't sound like that would even be something that would cross anybody's mind, but it does. It's huge for me and it's huge for us in our relationship for him to be able to do something really nice for me like that. So I think that's important to think beyond just the food and the doctor's bills and things like that. Like where, where are those just little gestures that you can ask for support with that can really just make a huge impact. So next question is more so for me. So how do I support my husband to better understand and make it easier on him too, because it's not all about, Hey, I'm the sick one. Take, 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 take. It's a lot. Okay. He is still a human being that needs support and I need to support him in understanding how to support me better, if that makes sense. So obviously still that just sharing, um, responsibilities that we'll both share, you know, who cleans up the kitchen, who does the laundry, things like that. But making it easier on him for him to understand what I need in the beginning when we first started dating and we were married, I believe when we were first married, I had you read Omnivore's Dilemma. which is by Michael Pollan that talks all about, like it's just an amazing foundational book for understanding why why GMO corn is bad and why grain-fed cattle is bad and why, you know, just all this really foundational stuff that we follow all the time. And I asked him to read that. And that was part of him supporting me and me supporting him as well. But rather than just saying, rather than just telling him, I can't eat that. Like, I can't, I can't have that donut. No, like that doesn't really give him a lot to go off of. And that doesn't help him be able to do any nice gestures to support me back. Like I love when he's able to, um, you know, be able to get me food or something like that, like go to the grocery store and be like, Hey, I brought you back this LaCroix or something like that, because he understands, okay, this is something that can help her. This is something that both of us can have. It's important to make it easier on him to understand and then just make this whole situation easier on us as well. So while I'm the one that's basically always in the kitchen cooking for myself, I'm the one that pretty much cooks almost everything for him. He does a lot of assembly, like he'll assemble his nachos, but <laughs> I I made it all and shopped for it. So it's a back and forth. It's we have to support each other. So next one, um fatigue is a big factor with chronic illness. Like I said earlier, I may be a lot better, but I'm not necessarily a thousand percent when it comes to things like fatigue. If I work too hard, I definitely go down pretty quick. Um, I definitely am susceptible to fatigue. So how do we still make time for each other with craziness and fatigue? Like, How do we make sure that we still have time to support each other and continue to cultivate and grow our relationship. I would say number one, and this was something that 
Daniel was really good about forcing me to do, and it's funny that he had to force me to do this, but we have like a date night. Do you want to talk about your thinking behind that, Daniel? Um, I don't think it's anything groundbreaking, but yeah, just good, good common wisdom to have some night that's kind of set apart and, you know, no, no excuse, hardly any excuses accepted. We'll always make that our top priority, at least spend that one night, picked a random night of the week, Wednesday and go out and, you know, get dressed up. So we're not just always seeing each other lying around and get to see each other at our best. Yeah, you do though. You do. <laughs> on my nice yoga pants. Exactly. The nicest ones. <laughs> yeah. I mean, obviously that makes a difference. And I feel like we, not as officially, but essentially we'll always make at least one or two moments during any weekend to go out and spend some time together, even if it's just going for a long extended walk. Yeah. Yeah. That's been huge of just making sure that we have time to do something. And what I really like about it too, of having a date night or a date afternoon, something like that, or just, Hey, we're going to spend one hour, two hours a week, just devoting time to spend to each other is that we don't have a lot of expectations behind it. Sometimes we go out and sometimes we get on, you know, nicer outfits and stuff, but on the nights where I'm just really exhausted and it's usually always him that wants to go out and me that just goes down sometimes like, no, I have to stay home. Then we just stay home, make a simple Mills pizza and watch the X-Files. And he's okay with that. So I think that's, really important. So last question, what advice do you have, both me and you, to other couples going through health challenges? How do you, you know, just what general advice? How do you get support from people? I'll go first. I'll let you marinate on that for a minute because I wrote this question. (laughs) Um, We've been sprinkling our advice throughout But my number one piece of advice with getting support from your spouse, your relationship partner, your significant other, your family, people around you all together is first and foremost, just remembering that support doesn't have to come in the form of them eating exactly the same way as you. It can come in ways of just going to put gas in their car. And then the other thing, and I'm sure that Anne would agree with this as well, she talks about this a lot, is just giving the other person grace in understanding and starting to understand, okay, this is a different way of doing things. Daniel has had to learn a lot with, he's a very outdoorsy kind of person. And I'm just not, I don't know if that has to do with my health or my upbringing will say both <laughs> but I'm not the person that wants to hike and do all that stuff I'm just not into it so he's had to give in he's had to give me a lot of grace um just of adjusting and I've had to hit, give him grace as well just in the beginning of him trying to figure out how to best support me you know, we're still both humans and we can't 100% expect anybody else to be perfect all the time. Giving each other a lot of grace, giving each other a lot of feedback, you know, me telling him, hey, this is exactly what I can't have. This is why 
um, him, him giving me feedback. Yeah, I think those are all my biggest pieces of advice. What about you? Do you have any pearls? Well, it's a, it's definitely a great question. I feel like I could, you know, put a lot more thought into it. But uh, some one of the things that jumps to mind, of course, is just and we kind of touched on this with the uh, the earlier talk when you referred to giving me books to read and stuff. But just really understanding as much as you can uh, what your significant other, just actually understanding what they're going through, so that you can you know, make those intelligence decisions. And so that when they're wondering what they need to do, you can actually be a part of that conversation and, and suggest things intelligently. And, you know, rather than it just being in a, a fight that they're entirely on their own for, that would be my thought. Amen. You're the best. Thanks. <laughs> Last question. This is a little fun something. Anne and I do this at the end of every web episode, every web referral. It's late. Um, we need to be watching X-Files right now, but we're not. Um, can we watch X-Files after this? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yesterday we watched SpongeBob. Tell them. It's supposed to be a secret. You weren't supposed to tell anyone. Tell them. Okay. No, they all know. Tell them. Okay, wait, really quick before we get into this last segment. This is really, really important. I promise. Tell every, every listener why this family is spongebob royalty your sister oh how could you forget <laughs> yeah yeah my my sister is uh, uh when she was younger she actually managed to be a part of the spongebob theme song as and she's one of the little kids singing along you know <laughs> exactly That's my sister in law mean manically in the background <laughs> You get everything with this episode, man. Um, so <laughs> the last segment that we do on our podcast is meal of the week. And we just share some fun meal inspiration. So what is our meal of the week that you think that we've recently enjoyed together? I have one in mind that I think that you really like. Daniel's not good. Dan for these things. <laughs> yeah, Daniel's not good at remember. Like, I'll ask him, like, hey, like, he'll be hungry when he gets home for dinner. Like, what'd you eat for lunch? Like, I don't know. Like, he won't remember what he ate, like, 20 minutes ago. Um, a meal that I make that you really like um, is my... I just thought of another one. <laughs> I have a lot of pictures of this in my Instagram feed. I don't have a recipe on the blog because it's just kind of a hodgepodge thing, but I'm on a whole 30 right now. So I'm not, they'll talk, probably talk about that more next week, but, and you'll see it on my Instagram, but something that we eat when I'm not doing a whole 30 is these tacos where it's almond flour, siete tortillas, smoked salmon, bacon, eggs, arugula like cilantro or green onion and some sort of cheese <laughs> yeah yeah definitely one of the top three meals of all time yeah i'm a big fan of that one yeah last time i made i made it and he was like i'm getting really used to this just being like a thing i'm very happy that you're just doing this all the time it's really mm -hmm. expensive putting that all together so that's why we don't do it every day it's like a sometimes weekend thing. <laughs> but 
it makes us both really happy. And when we start out our Saturday morning, both eating that, we're like, man, this is great. So, I mean, how many people that are, you know, married couples, they go out on date nights and they go to big, expensive, fancy steak dinners. So we're still saving money in the end. But yeah, that's one that we really like. So Daniel, thanks a ton for being with me here tonight. Thanks for being awesome. And I hope that people learned something from this little chat. So thanks. Happy to be here. Bye. Hey, yo. Hi, everybody. Ann and James here. In the house. Literally in our house. Yeah. You're so funny. Uh, We're just uh, feeding a fussy little babe, so we're going to try and make this as concise as possible, which if you're a longtime listener, you know that's not my strong suit. So let's get started with me and James's story. So let's talk about how we met, babe. I can do that. Okay. But yeah, I was in winter of 2012, and it was at a health food store in Austin, Texas. And I was the general manager of the joint, and Ann was a customer. And since I was an employee there, especially in management, I didn't feel that it was appropriate or cool to flirt with... uh, a customer or ask her out or anything like that. Cause I, you know, I wouldn't want to scare her off or lose her business or just be a creeper. So whenever I saw her, I would just make a small talk and say like, Hey, what are you going to do with those eggs? And we got into a heated debate about whose dog was cuter. Basically stewed for like a week or two until I saw Anne in the health food store again. And then it was quickly determined that my dog was actually cuter. And uh, I think that was the last time we actually chatted before you sent me a Facebook message. No. So it's slightly different. Um, these, this particular health food store has like a bunch of boxes that you, they don't use bags. They oh, give you boxes this. to take out. And I saw James for the first time and I was like so into him that I like pulled a box from the bottom of this big old pile and all these boxes came tumbling down practically on top of me and James rushed over to help. I remember that. I picked up all the boxes and tried to help you not worry about it. Like, Oh, I do that all the time. People do this every day. And then we talked about how we ate a lot of eggs. We both ate a lot of eggs because we were both vegetarian. Anyway, I found out where he was from. So then I found the car that had that state's license plate in the parking lot and then I would only go to the store if I knew he was there because I saw his car there. Mm -hmm. Can I slip in an unrelated fun fact? Sure. So neither of us are vegetarians anymore. I'm sure you know that if you listen to Ann's podcast and I actually work for a functional medicine physician here in Austin, Texas and because of that I'm pretty involved with a lot of uh, functional lab companies and one of them, uh, Immunolabs, who we actually don't use anymore but we used to, we still get their emails they sent out a New Year's email uh, at the beginning of this year in January, basically just saying, hi, everybody, happy New Year. Here were the top five most inflammatory foods that the millions of tests that we did, these were the five foods that people were sensitive to the most often. Eggs was on the list. Top five foods. 
I bet people are going to want to know what the other four are. Let's keep yeah. it. Let's keep it from them. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. It was uh, Brewer's Yeast was number one. Cow's Milk was number two. Eggs was number three. Uh, what were the other two? I don't remember. Milk, eggs, Brewer's Yeast. Ooh, I'll remember in a minute. Okay. We'll continue on. So we've been together five years now, and we'll be celebrating our third anniversary in April. Third wedding anniversary. Yes. We're super excited about it. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about when I broke the news of my chronic illness and how I did that without being awkward. So without it being awkward is like, that didn't happen. It was the most awkward moment. And looking back, like, should have been really embarrassing. But... At the time, I think you were so concerned with it that I don't think you were thinking about it being awkward or I shouldn't do this or I don't want to scare this guy off or anything like that. I think you were just really emotional about it and needed somebody to talk to. Yeah. And I didn't have anybody in my life. I didn't have a support system in my life. um, Well, I mean, to be fair, you had friends and family, but right. But nobody that was like familiar with this stuff. So that's um, the caveat here is James had been working in the health industry for a decade by the time I met him. So he was familiar with all mm-hmm. of this stuff. I had been pretty much everything. I'd been a health coach. I'd been the general manager of a health food store. I had, I mean, for many years I had been in that industry. Yeah. So there was a, he's, he wasn't your, it wasn't the average like boyfriend situation. So I think we had been dating for like one or two months at this point, And I had just gotten the diagnosis of PCOS and I went into his, store and I was in the supplement section. I still remember this. It was in the health and it was in the body care section, the body care section. And I, I think I like tracked you down to find where you were at in the store. And I just like broke down and started crying about it. Um, which is just like terribly embarrassing at at this point, but I don't really feel like it's embarrassing. It just went, goes to show like how comfortable I felt with you right off the bat. So he, he reacted really well and was very supportive and did a lot of research on like, that's another thing in my PCOS diag or my POTS diagnosis. Um, that had happened before I met James, but he did all this research on ways that I could help like remediate those symptoms through supplementation and everything. So he was just very, very supportive. Mm-hmm. So again, not not your average situation, but yeah. But I think it uh, it goes to show that if somebody that you love has a problem, especially a chronic illness, they might be too confused, too emotional, too scared. You know, it's a lot to be faced with. Um, and you, as you know, the other partner, as maybe the more in that scenario, anyway, the more rational, the more calm, the more not as directly affected might be able to uh, more concertedly put some effort into researching it because they're not as personally involved. Like if you get a cancer diagnosis, you know, like let's say if I got one tomorrow, I think for weeks I would be just emotionally distraught. You know what I mean? But you as my partner I think would have a more level head, like, okay, let's move forward. Let's deal with this. Let's be positive. Let's do everything we can. And you'd probably be more able to pour your energy into research and finding solutions rather than sort of uh, wallowing in the, 
you know, the pit of despair per se. Right. So whoever, whoever's listening to this, whether you're the one with chronic illness or whether you're the significant other to somebody with chronic illness, I think just being supportive and being that like stabilizing. Yeah, I agree. And I think, I think that goes for any situation in life. Like if something bad happens to somebody, that's really traumatic emotionally and mentally and sometimes physically. And that person may not have the wherewithal or the aptitude or even the physical strength to be able to pull themselves out of the muck. And I think that, you know, if you really love that person or care about that person, then you should help them get out of it. (laughs) Yes. Agreed. Okay. So how do we go on dates with things like food intolerances and fatigue, et cetera? I want to talk about this one. Okay, go. So I have done a lot of different diets throughout the history of mankind. I guess I, I've, you know, I've done vegan, I've done vegetarian, I've done fasting and I've done intermittent fasting and I've been, okay, I'm just avoiding gluten and dairy, but I'll eat everything else. So basically I guess where Anne met me doesn't make it lucky, but um, it, it worked out that when she met me, so Anne's a celiac. I'm sure you guys already know that. Um, she's completely gluten intolerant, can't do, um, any wheat or gluten whatsoever. Interestingly enough, some gluten free products that are made with like barley, but are below five parts per million. She can tolerate pretty well. Like, um, omission IPA. Yeah. Like that's exactly what I was thinking of. Like, I'm surprised that doesn't mess with you considering it's made with barley, but technically according to FDA standards, it is gluten-free, but some people, even that would set them off. Mm-hmm. And I wonder in those cases, if it isn't actually gluten, if it's trans gluten, you know, if it's just something else, it's some other molecular mimicry or some other protein or lectin or compound in the food that's actually triggering them, not necessarily gluten, which makes me think of BPA-free plastic. This is going off on a tangent. I know we're off the rails. What about BPS? You know, what about all the other plasticizing agents? So I don't think that means a lot, but anyway, um, and kind of was fortunate that she found somebody and started dating somebody that because she was on such a restricted diet that I had done restricted diets in the past. So I wasn't a stranger to that. It's pretty easy for me to adapt or just give things up. Like some people, I think if you ask them to give up fast food or get, ask them to give up bread or maybe they eat, I don't know, Whole Foods breakfast bar five times a week, you know, before work and they get eggs and white potatoes every single day. If you ask them to give that up, that would be like a huge sacrifice. Yeah. It would just be a big thing on their part. But I guess in my world, I had done that so many times before and I had a lot of practice with it. So it didn't really bother me to like, Anne doesn't eat nightshades or Anne doesn't eat gluten or Anne doesn't eat this other thing. You know, actually I was a vegetarian when I met you. We didn't even, we both were vegetarian. Yeah. We ate eggs and cheese. I was eating dairy back then. I don't know. But anyway, um, yeah, it was pretty easy for me to like, if Anne wanted to do AIP or needed to give up, you know, just nightshades and grains or something like that, it was really easy for me to do that with her and support her and mm-hmm. cook in that, in that, uh, framework, just because I'd done things like that before. And I, I agreed with her need to do that and understood it. But what would we tell people who have partners that don't understand it? Michelle and I have talked about this in our episode on like how to live with, I I don't remember what it was, but how to get, oh, how to live with non-paleo people. Mm -hmm. 
And the biggest suggestion was asking for their support, but not asking them to do it with you. Because that that's like what James is saying. If you're asking somebody to give up whatever food they truly love, they're going to be a lot more resistant to it. And they're going to be a lot more pressuring to you to also not give up those foods. But if instead you ask them just for their support and why you're doing this and telling them that this is for health reasons and it's going to make you feel a lot better, then they're going to likely be a lot more accommodating to your needs. So that'd be my suggestion with that. But James is very supportive, even in in situations that don't require like him to comply with the exact same standards that I do. So for an, an example of that would be, I've, I've mentioned before that because I didn't have a, a positive celiac diagnosis, and that was more like an assumption on behalf of a hematologist that I have celiac disease, that I have a hard time saying to somebody, yes, at, like at a restaurant, if they say, is this an allergy or is this just an intolerance? I have a hard time being like, yeah, I have celiac disease. And I don't know, this is like a mental barrier, but James always like advocates for me on that, on that end. He's like, yeah, it's, it's really severe on her end. And that always like, it kind of takes the pressure off of me and just feels really nice. It also feels nice to have somebody else say that because I feel like people take it more seriously like the servers the wait staff takes it more seriously when it's not just me over here being like oh yeah I have like an allergy it's like mm-hmm. somebody else is also backing me up in this yeah I, I think that's probably society's fault because gluten-free has become a fad so when you tell a server or you know whoever's taking your order or somebody over the phone that you're gluten-free or your meal needs to be gluten-free I think they tend to see that as this per- person is high maintenance or, you know, just jumping on a trend rather than this person has a health problem. Right. But if I go to the market and I order breakfast tacos on, you know, organic corn tortillas or something like that, which naturally we don't need a lot of corn or anything, but, um, and I tell them, Hey, my wife is allergic to wheat. Please make sure those are on corn. Then suddenly there's a lot of credence to what is being said to them. You know what I right. mean? Because it's not just somebody, sort of proclaiming that they have some issue that the server doesn't even believe. Right. So that would be another way for somebody to help support you is just by being your advocate in it. And then another thing, James, in our household, James does a majority of the cooking. I would say now it's a little bit more 50-50. You've you've been cooking a lot more lately since my commute has, well, you know, just I'm driving a lot more. Right. um, But yeah, like last night I came home and you had made like two different, you know, two different dinners but for the most part when we like for the majority of our relationship james has been the primary cooker and so (laughs) (laughs) so with that he like when i went on strict aip i could just come up with recipes for him to make and he would roughly follow them he's not really a recipe kind of guy but i could say like hey this is kind of what we're doing and he would he would wing it from there. Give me an example. Um, <laughs> what's what's something that I winged? What's something I cookered? <laughs> oh, anyway, <Lord>. next topic. <laughs> okay. Uh, okay. How do we navigate dinners and meals together? A good example of this is when I went AIP, James also went AIP, but only in the meals that we did eat together. So it was just... 
like dinners and then on the weekends. And then when he was at work, he would eat a protein bar for breakfast that maybe had nuts in it and then whatever he wanted for lunch. So he kind of stuck to his own template when we weren't together. But then when we were together, it was very supportive. We only had to cook one meal Mm -hmm. and we kind of just focused rather on rather than finding substitutions for our favorite foods, we focused more on just like a lot of vegetables, protein, fat. So it wasn't like I was asking him to replace his favorite gluten-free pasta because he was gluten-free also, but to replace his gluten-free pasta with zucchini noodles, I was just saying, hey, let's just eat vegetables, protein, fat, fruit, whatever, Um, which I think is maybe a little bit easier in the beginning for somebody to do rather than to feel like they're giving up their pasta and replacing it with something that doesn't taste like pasta. Mm -hmm. And if I really wanted to, again, I could just, you know, I think sometimes you don't have to do exactly what your partner's doing. Like if you're at work and you go to lunch and you go to, I don't, God, I don't know, like Mongolian barbecue and you decide to have black beans with Szechuan sauce, that's sort of your prerogative as long as you don't bring it home and ask your partner to eat it or eat it in front of them. You know, I don't know, maybe they're fine with you eating it in front of them. But, you know, I think that sometimes just breakfast and dinner or just dinner, it's not that big of a deal. Like you can kind of do what you want for lunch and possibly even for breakfast. So I think you can still share dinner with your partner or your family um, without sacrificing everything. Like if you really had to eat pizza or something, you could do it on your own time. Right. Or add like maybe the primary components of the meal are the same, but you can add something to your spouse's meal that isn't complying with your diet. Let's say it's like toast, like gluten filled toast or ketchup. If you make sweet potato fries and they eat ketchup and you don't. Yeah. I mean, we, we do that all the time. Like Anne doesn't eat dairy, but she does eat goat. Well, okay. So that's sort of a misnomer. (laughs) Like she does eat goat cheese. She doesn't eat, I should say cow's dairy. And I don't eat dairy at all. I don't even eat goat cheese. So sometimes we'll make like a big salad and I'll just put goat cheese on Anne's, but not on mine. Not right. a big deal there. So you just kind of like accommodate each other and, but you're still eating the like primary components are still the same thing so that you don't have to cook two meals, which is a lot less stressful. Mm-hmm. Okay. Fatigue is a big factor with chronic illness. So how do we make time for each other with the craziness of life? That's something that I really wanted to talk about because it's something that James pointed out to me maybe three years ago. I was working full time and had my blog and my coaching business. And it was just, I was working all the time. And on top of that, dealing with adrenal fatigue and probably just making myself worse. And he finally was like, like sat me down and told me, Hey, every, every day you come home. And even though we're together, we're sitting on the sofa together, we're watching a show together. You're on your computer doing this work. And that was like, for me, it was kind of this like wake up call that not that our relationship was suffering, but just that I wasn't, I wasn't putting enough time into it and I wasn't putting enough like undivided attention towards it. And so that was something that like, when it comes to how do we make time for each other with the craziness of life, it's like, you just have to make a decision to prioritize your relationship, Mm -hmm. whether that's like you being chronically fatigued and you have 30 minutes a day where you feel like decent enough. Yeah. Then you need to prioritize that time to spend it with 
the people that are closest to you because mm-hmm. chronic chronic illness is really easy. I think there's a lot of um, I don't want to sound negative, but I think that the divorce rate goes up with chronic illness, and I I believe a lot of it is because of because of this like inability to spend time together because of fatigue and yeah. I think I think that the inability to spend meaningful time together, right. like you know, one person sleeping on one end of the couch and then the other one half watching a show and half being on their phone, I wouldn't call meaningful time. Um, but I think that's what happens a lot in these scenarios: is one person or or maybe even both people just feel so terrible that they just want to distract themselves or they just want to sit on the couch and watch TV. And that's not really meaningful time. It's not really a way to bond, I don't think. It doesn't really encourage like talking or connecting or intimacy or anything like that. So yeah, I can I can definitely see how that would drive up resentment and divorce mm-hmm. and things like that. And just like, you know, any anything that gets in the way of real communication and intimacy and having fun together, you end up just being roommates. Right. And roommates fight and roommates you know, often resent each other and that's, yeah, that's no way to be. So yeah, I I would agree with you there. If you have like, if every day after work you feel like garbage, but after like a nap or I don't know, soaking your feet in apple cider vinegar and hot water or something, if that's when you feel good, then I think that you should take that feel good time and take a walk with your loved one or, you know, give them a back rub, trade back rubs or (laughs) go to the bedroom, you know, like, be close. Right. Yep. I agree. And that one thing that I've always said is like every single day that he would get home because there was a a period of time where actually, I mean, it's still like this, but a period of time where I would be home from work before he would be. And it was something that every single day, like no matter what I was doing, whether I was watching TV or on my computer or on my phone, every day that he walked in the door, I had to make a decision to not just sit there and be like, hi, welcome home or like ignore him, but get up and go give him a hug and a kiss. And I think that that's like really meaningful and special. It's just something that you have to make the decision and do. And sometimes it's hard and sometimes it's, it doesn't feel good to you physically, but if it's important to you, then you really need to make time for it. I think there's, I'll try to link it in the show notes. There's a video by a girl, Ruthie Lindsay, and I've posted about her uh, before, talked about her before on the podcast. And she has a really great mindset about this where she knew she was never going to get rid of this um, nerve damage that she had that was causing a lot of pain. And so she could either spend the rest of her life in bed or she could get up and, and figure out a way to live with it. And, and I think that's, that's kind of like what I'm feeling here mm-hmm. is yeah. that a, at some point you just have to make a decision to prioritize those people in your life. Mm-hmm. Grin and bear it, not right. wallow in your sorrow. Yeah. And that can be really difficult to do. Like it's the, the human condition generally to take the path of least resistance. And that is often just laying in bed with a pillow over your head and the lights off. Um, but if, you know, if this is your life, then you have to make the best of it. Mm-hmm. All right. Last question. What advice do you have to other couples going through health challenges? 
I would, my very first advice would be never stop looking for a cure. So whatever your health challenges, whether it's cancer or multiple sclerosis or scleroderma or arthritis or just whatever is going on, whether it's you're hurting or you have terrible psoriasis or you're too embarrassed to leave the house because of something, I don't know, you have a thyroid condition and you've gained 100 pounds, like whatever your deal is, I wouldn't feel stuck because I do feel like things like um, functional medicine and naturopathic medicine and just alternative remedies are, you know, the, I think the paradigm has been changing for 15 years or more. I think it used to be sort of a subculture and now it's a huge part of the mainstream that cures are out there. People are getting better. They're, you know, the, the doctor I work for, um, is, is huge into people taking back their health and reclaiming their health. And that's something I have a lot of respect for. So I would encourage people to always keep looking, always keep trying, always keep reading and researching and just being at the cutting edge. You don't want to miss out. Like if 110 people a year are getting their life back, wouldn't you want to be one of those people? Sure. That's like less than a 10th of a percent of people that live in America, but if you're on the right blogs and you're reading the right functional medicine, you know, editorials or whatever, then you're going to be the person to find out about it. Because I guarantee you the media and the pharmaceutical companies and the food companies and, you know, the, the clerk at your grocery store, these people are not going to, and your own doctor, you know, even, even specialized doctors like nephrologists and rheumatologists and infectious diseases doctors, they're not even at the cutting edge. You know, they generally, not all of them, I'm not going to sit here and insult you know, medical professionals, but they're often 20 years in the past as far as, you know, cutting edge labs and research and, and cures. So right. I would, I would always try to be on the cutting edge and try to find the cure. And I know that's not sentimental, but that would be my advice because a lot of people around the world get their health back. Right. And I'll give a sentimental one, but I want to piggyback off of that first. So what he's saying is like really important in being an advocate for your own health and coming to to your doctor with things that you feel mm -hmm. like might be an issue. Right. So not necessarily doing it all yourself just by researching online, going to the Google machine, but like taking the information that you're finding to a specialist, to somebody and asking them, like, are you willing to do more research on this? If you're not familiar with it, if you are, what can we do to test me for it? Mm -hmm. Things like that. Yeah. And sometimes you don't, I mean, sometimes you don't even ask them to do research. Like their lives are crazy busy. They work they're in the office 13 hours a day. They barely have time to spend with their loved ones. Um, I think sometimes you have to do your own research and then do a little arm twisting to get the labs that you want run, run. Like if you want a shoemaker panel or you want, you know, to have your thyroid checked or you want to know if you're B12 deficient and you happen to know that this lab checks for B12 deficiency better and different than this other lab and that's the one they want to order. I think sometimes you just have to twist their arm to get the labs you want ordered. And if they won't do it for you, then maybe you need to find a resource so you can order your own labs. And maybe this doesn't hit home for a lot of people. Maybe people are out there, you know, don't know anything no, about labs. Does. But I think if you just do a little homework, like, for instance, I'll give a quick example. Like, if you're somebody who thinks you might have an autoimmune disease, but you don't have health insurance, or you don't have a doctor who believes in autoimmunity, or knows anything about it. Like maybe you've read everything and you're just positive you've got, I don't know, Sjogren's or something like that. Well, you can just research, well, what lab tests check for that? And I'm not telling people they should be their own doctors. There's a lot that goes into that. But 
surely there's something to glean from ordering those labs, getting them checked. If you happen to fall into the, you know, the, the lab ranges where people are generally positive or, you know, actually have that diagnosis or that disease, then that I think would carry a lot of clout with a doctor to get them to refer you to a specialist. So you can actually start making some progress. But if you don't start making progress on your own, nobody else is going to do that for you. Like the American medical system and the American insurance system are criminally broken and they are not going to advocate for you or work in your favor in most cases. So I do think that you have to do that for yourself, which, you know, that kind of sucks, but it's, it's a way forward. Right. Well, and one thing that if you feel uncomfortable asking your doctor for tests, one way that I've gotten around this is like when I was pregnant, I would say to my midwife, oh yeah, this specialist that I've been working with asked specifically for this one. Are you able to, to test me for that particular mm-hmm. um, test? Yeah. And that way it's like, even though a specialist, no, I totally got this information from my own studies. Like, but instead of me saying, hey, I think I need to be tested for this because of this article I read and then thinking, well, what article did you read? There can't be, I have no idea what that is. If I'm saying like a specialist suggested this to me, then I feel like they're a lot more willing to test you for it. I agree. I think a lot of, in my experience, um, you know, working in the industry I do and just being a human being and knowing things, let's just say that, um, I think a lot of doctors resent being asked to run certain labs because they immediately, you know, they, they tend to be of the mindset, obviously not all of them are, but I think a lot of them tend to be of the mindset that this person is literally insinuating that they know more than me um, or they think they know best and they're trying to tell me how to do my job. And I think they immediately resent that. Um, but I think what Anne said is super valuable advice. Like you could simply say like, hey, you know, I'm working with this specialist who doesn't take insurance. I'm hoping that you can order this lab that they recommended, you know, and you could even like maybe you have some moral qualm with telling a little white lie like that. And honestly, like if your favorite medical professional or health expert recommends that lab, then is it really a lie? Like somebody that you've been collaborating with wants you to get a test and you asked for the test. I, I wouldn't even have any moral qualm with saying yes. Somebody wants me to get this test. Can you please order it? I agree. And again, I, I do want to put it out there real quick. Like I, I can't really mention any because of, uh, you know, I, I work for a doctor who, you know, orders labs and things like that. So I don't want to create a conflict of interest or anything, but there's lots of companies out there that you can order your own labs through. You know, I, I can't mention them specifically, but it's super, it's not any big secret. It's totally legal almost everywhere. I think New York, Rhode Island, and New Jersey are the only three states that you can't order your own labs. And then there's like a county in Florida and a county in Nevada. I think or it's hard like in that. Canada too. Well, you know, I, that I don't, I don't know anything yeah, about that. But you can research it and find, find yeah, these things. It's really easy to order your own labs and it's pretty inexpensive too. Um, provided that it's like a, a common lab, like some of these non FDA approved, um, you know, I'm not saying they're invaluable, like not valuable. A lot of them are super valuable, but, most labs are pretty cheap. Like you can find out most, uh, you know, the, the value of most tests for anywhere from 12 to $35, um, which isn't too bad. Like if you wanted to find out what your TSH or your T3 or your, your vitamin D or something like that, it's generally pretty affordable. 
Um, I think the the big costs run in like if you want a full workup, I would always try to get the full workup from your doctor and get that run through insurance and get that covered. And then maybe any labs that they refuse to order or that, you know, they can't get for you for some reason, maybe you could order those on your own just to save yourself some money. And if a doctor tells you, well, I don't think that's going to be covered by insurance, you can ask whoever's running the labs if how much it costs to prepay. Mm -hmm. And it's likely going to be a lot cheaper to prepay than if they sent it to insurance insurance were to deny it and then send the price back to you. Yeah, I can I can say from experience that like let's just give a, another hypothetical here. Let's say you wanted to find out your vitamin D. And if your doctor doesn't put a diagnosis code of vitamin D deficiency on your soap note, your insurance company probably isn't going to cover a vitamin D lab. Maybe they will, maybe they won't. Um, I can tell you right now that your prepay price should be anywhere from $25 to $35 for that test. But if your doctor instead, or you know, let's say the lab or wherever you get the lab drawn, if they bill your insurance, they don't bill your insurance $25 to $35. They're going to bill your insurance $200 to $300. And then if your insurance denies it, then the lab company is legally forced to have you pay $200 to $300. At that point, they can't give you the prepay price of $25 to $35 because it's literally against the law. They're not allowed to bill your insurance company one value and then turn around when they deny it, turn around and bill you something else. Interesting. Okay. Uh, my advice, my more sentimental advice would be to it. Something that James said earlier, like trade back rubs or foot rubs or something like that to, and think of it as like a self care activity and a relaxation activity. Michelle and I always stress the importance of finding stress-reducing activities. And that's a way that you can spend time, meaningful time with your significant other while also having like a self-care activity. Mm -hmm. And there, you know, there's some things that just have to be done. Um, not to sound too cheesy, but laundry and folding the clothes and putting them away have to get done. Cooking and washing the dishes have to get done. Unless everybody listening to this has like a maid or, you know, Doubtful. you know, maybe they just have like a robot that does all this for them. Like we have to do those things. So if I'm putting the laundry in and you're folding it or vice versa, or if I'm cooking and you're doing the dishes or vice versa, that's quality time that can be spent together doing something productive. Like it doesn't have to be that I'll cook while you watch TV mm -hmm. and then you'll do laundry while I watch TV or something like that. Like that's just encouraging separation, I think. And sometimes you do need to do that. Like sometimes you just need time to chill out. You do need to just watch TV by yourself and relax while maybe somebody, maybe somebody else does some chores. But I think when you can, doing those things together so that you feel like you're helping each other and you're spending time together and it gives you a chance to actually talk rather than just listen to the radio or listen to TV. Right. I think that's valuable too. You know, that makes a lot of sense. It made me kind of realize like we used to, when James did almost all of the cooking, he would do the cooking during the week, and then on the weekends, I would pretty much do all of the cleaning. But it's not really like that anymore. I feel mm -hmm. like now it's kind of a balance. Like we, just like you were saying, like we cook together or cook and clean, you know, like alternate who does mm -hmm. what. And yeah, we just kind of do everything together. Right. Now. Like, and on Sunday mornings, Anne makes the coffee while I make brunch or vice right. versa or something like that. Right. Fancy coffee. Okay, uh, meal of the week. So this is how Michelle and I always end the show. James listens to the show. 
Do you ever get to the meal of the week? I do get to the meal of the week sometimes, but okay. I haven't heard it in several weeks. Okay, meal of the week that we enjoy together. Can you think of anything that we've been well, we eating together? Basically, I mean, we don't need every... Oh my gosh, well... So I know what you're going to say. favorite... Oh my gosh. So I've had food aversions all throughout pregnancy, and then even uh, postpartum I'd been having food aversions. Let me butt in. Anne never had food aversions before she got pregnant. Never. Anything I wanted to make... Anything I wanted to bring home, I could bring home brisket, I could bring home gluten-free fried chicken, I could bring home anything under the sun. I could bring home grilled zucchini or cook it or whatever, and she'd be down to eat it. Now, I literally have to ask her every day, can I make this for dinner? Because (laughs) just things don't sound good to her anymore. And I wonder, I, I know it's meal of the week, but I wonder if when you're pregnant and when you're breastfeeding... If your if your body and mind become like four times as picky, because they're it's much more crucial that like nutrient deficiencies and things like that. Oh. Like there, I, I know this story about like homeless like alley cats, like feral cats. If you give them a cat treat, even when they're starving, they'll eat it the first time. But if you give them another treat of the same flavor and type, they won't eat it because they're conditioned to eat variety. Like a cat, a cat can't right, just right. live Makes on, sense. yeah. So it, they can't just live on milk. So they'll drink milk once, but then they need a mouse or some turkey or something different the next meal. Because, Crazy. you know, if you think about it, that's how they've sort of evolutionarily evolved to not develop nutrient deficiencies. Mm-hmm. It, it, like their body forces them to implement variety in their diet. Mm-hmm. And I kind of wonder if what if that's kind of what's going well, on here. especially because I've... I'm a very intuitive eater at this point in my health journey too. So that does all Mm -hmm. make sense. You tend to know when you can get away with like, oh, I can eat some salsa today. But then like Anne will tell me like there's, okay, there's no way I can be eating nightshades today because of, you know, X, Y, Z. But anyway, meal of the week. So he made me fried fish. We're actually going to make a fish and chips recipe for the blog at some point. He made me fried fish with what? So, how did you? Make yeah, that? it was interesting. Like Anne doesn't eat grains, and she doesn't eat. Well, we're avoiding eggs right now. We don't. We're not like a hundred percent on the eggs thing, but we we've been. I yeah. think it's been a few weeks, like maybe a month, mm-hmm. where we I haven't know. been buying them and haven't been really eating them. Anyway, um, so the way I did it with no grains and no eggs is, I took uh, yellowtail, which isn't that hard to find. Or no, actually, it was flounder. I took flounder from Trader Joe's. Pretty inexpensive, pretty easy to find. And and you can do this with any fish. You can do it with cod. Well, any white fish, I should say. I don't know that I would want a bread like salmon or tuna. And never or eat like tilapia. That. Yeah, which is also a white fish. But yeah. um, That's why I said never eat it. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's always like farm-raised. Right. And it's super high in omega-6 fatty acids. And mm-hmm. I wonder, is that because it's farm-raised? But anyway, um, the way I did it is when you take white fish, it's always super wet. And it's when it's wet with water, nothing's going to stick to it. So I paper toweled it really good. And you can do this with uh, chicken breast too. Um, So you need to dry it off really well with paper towels. Don't squeeze it or smash it. Just pat it really well. Get all the water off it so that the fish appears dry. Then I simply brushed it with plenty of olive oil. Like I use a ton of olive oil. I have no qualms with using like a quarter of a bottle in one meal. Um, Lots of olive oil on the fish. And then in this case, I literally just um, dredged it in arrowroot. 
starch. And arrowroot is a root, like it's considered a root vegetable. So it's a starch, not a grain. So technically it's AIP. And at that point, I used a cast iron skillet, which I had heated up some coconut oil in. I believe I used... Coconut. Yeah, I did use coconut oil. And when you're frying fish or chicken for that matter, um, you need quite a bit of oil. So I think I used, God, I, I mean, I might've had a half cup in that pan. Gosh, it was so, so good. Yeah. So I had that with sauerkraut, which I hadn't eaten since pregnancy because mm-hmm. I grew an aversion to it. Yeah. In England, you know, they, they eat malt vinegar with fish and chips. Oh, and so it I was, yeah, it was like per the, the brine of the sauerkraut would sort of have that what vinegar else kick. What did we really have with it? Did I have potatoes with it? No, you had, I don't remember, something else. Something else, but it was the most amazing meal. And after that, I was like, that meal just made me excited to eat again. Yeah, and I haven't made it for you since. We'll have to go get some more fish. But you have made chicken. We kind of did the same thing with chicken strips. Yeah. And that was also equally amazing. We sliced up chicken breasts into thin strips and then just did the olive oil and arrowroot flour trick. I think, did I try, I kind of did 50-50 arrowroot tiger nut that time, and it didn't work out as well. Oh, I thought it was amazing. Either way. Yeah, it's kind of fun. Like, if you're not a super good cook, and you've been avoiding grains and, and, you know, vegetable oils, like, fried food is kind of off the menu, unless you do it yourself. Right. Just put a half cup of, or even, I don't know, maybe, maybe a quarter cup of coconut oil in a nice, hot cast iron skillet, and just dredge away get it done <laughs> so so worth wasting a half cup of coconut oil totally it was so delicious yeah all right that's it well to be fair you could pour the coconut oil into like a jar and put it in the fridge just like you would like baking grease or something and just use it the next day you would use it again why not i oxidized because it's well, already been cooked once yeah that... you could put would it be harmful to put it on your skin like use as like a lotion so once you heat it, I don't know. I mean, I think you damage a lot of the fatty acids and I don't know how valuable it is to your skin. I don't think it would be harmful in any... So maybe you could reuse it on your skin. Just don't put it on your skin when it's boiling hot. Obvs. Also, if you fry fish in it, um, like... Oh, the, Yeah, you know, it might smell funny and the, <laughs> the arrowroot flour that doesn't stick to the fish is going to sort of settle to the bottom Scratch of the pan. Scratch that idea. Yeah, you know what? Just get rid of the oil. Maybe put a teaspoonful on your dog's food or something. Okay. See ya. Take care. Thanks so much for listening to the Unbound Healing Podcast. Be sure to subscribe in iTunes and leave us a review. Until next time, you can find more from me, Anne, at grassfedsalsa.com and more from Michelle at unboundwellness.com. We'll see you next week. Bye.